0: There's Heavenly Gourmet Foods, and there's Hell's Kitchen right next to it. (laughs) Hell's Kitchen, they serve pretty much all fast food. It's very inexpensive. It's actually very appealing. It looks good. It's easy to get. It's constantly accessible. It's very popular. The line always seems longer at Hell's Kitchen than anywhere else. The food looks good, and it actually it delivers, actually. The, the hamburgers there, you know, they're, they're inexpensive. And you eat one of those hamburgers and, and it starts, there's a tingling that goes from head to toe. It's this wonderful culinary experience when you have one of those hamburgers. It affects your whole, your whole body. Whoa, good hamburger. The french fries there are amazing as well, especially if you dip them in the special sauce. You can have an out-of-body experience on those french fries. They're fantastic. You drink the cola and you'll never want to drink anything else again. It's just so amazing. It's so good. It looks good. It tastes good. At least for a little while it does. But there's a drawback to Hell's Kitchen's menu. As soon as you eat it, well, not right away. At first it feels great, but then shortly after there's this nasty side effect. It's All, all the food there is tainted. There's something in it, like MSG or something, but worse. It makes it taste good, but at the end you get this horrible headache. And you get sick to your stomach. And if you keep on eating there after a while, your skin starts to break out. You start to get bad chronic diseases and everything. It's all very well documented, the long-term effects of eating at Hell's Kitchen. But the line is usually longer there. People go back again and again. You and I go back again and again to Hell's Kitchen. Next to Hell's Kitchen is Heavenly Gourmet Foods. Everything's very different there. The food is carefully... Prepared. It's tailor-made for each customer. It takes a while to deliver it. It doesn't come out fast. It doesn't necessarily look as good, but it's much more wholesome. All organic ingredients. Tailor-made. Also, it's a little different than than Hell's Kitchen. Hell's Kitchen, you just go up, you pay a little bit of money, you get your food. Heavenly Gourmet is actually a food cooperative. If you're going to eat there, you need to be a member. And you need to actually work in the kitchen serving others as well. The food is carefully prepared. It doesn't have the excitement and thrill, at least right away, like Hell's Kitchen, but long-term, it's deeply satisfying and truly nourishing and delicious. It provides health and stamina, a sense of well-being, vitality, and there's a special thing if you're a member of Heavenly Gourmet Foods. They have this year-end banquet. The food's amazing at the year-end banquet. And, and it's actually... The food, from what I've heard, is even better than Hell's Kitchen's thrill. It has all the thrill, but all the depth of their regular food. And if if you ask, you can actually go back in the kitchen and get a sampling of the year-end banquet food. It's excellent. It's, it's delicious. It's nourishing. It's life-changing food. They have this year-end banquet that's wonderful. Life is like a food court. There's Hell's Kitchen. There's Heavenly Gourmet Foods. These two different menus offered they are very different in nature. And we have a choice where we're going to eat. Are we going to go to Heavenly Gourmet or Hell's Kitchen? Now, after this description, you might think, well, why not eat always at Heavenly Gourmet? What is going on? Why do people choose one versus the other? You know, it's actually very simple. You choose to eat at whichever one you think is a better food experience. Basically, you go to the one who you think the food tastes better and the experience is better. That's that's why you eat where you eat. Your decisions in life, the things you do, whether you walk in God's ways and obey Him, or you walk away from God, is simply a matter of what you think is the better. Now sometimes you think it's better because you're only thinking of the next ten minutes. But you still think it's better. Sometimes you think it's better because you are thinking long term. You always choose what you think is the better thing. So we are always at that food court making choices. And what Peter is doing and what God is doing here is he's piling up reasons to eat at Heavenly Gourmet Foods. And Scripture again and again gives us reasons to eat. Reasons to go to God, to find our life in Him, to follow His ways. And so as you... Go throughout your week. I, I hope that picture serves you. As we think of what First Peter says, and we're going to dig deeper in in a minute. I hope that picture serves you. It's always a choice. It's always convincing yourself that it's better to eat at heavenly gourmet than hell's kitchen. And the Scripture gives us these reasons to convince ourselves to fill our minds with why it's better to hear to, to eat at gourmet heavenly gourmet foods. So let's. Dig into 1 Peter 1.17-21 and look at what he says, what Peter now says in these paragraphs on motivations to eat at Heavenly Gourmet. There are really two things Peter says in this section of Scripture. He gives us two motivations among many. He says that we are to live for eternity, which is eating at Heavenly Gourmet. We are to live for eternity because we will stand before God. And we are to live for eternity because Christ has wonderfully ransomed us from futile ways. So let's start with the first one at the beginning, verse 17. We are to live for eternity because we will stand before God. Do you see that in verse 17? He says, And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. He uses the word and here at the beginning of the sentence. So he's following on from what goes in verse 16 about living a holy life. And so he's still addressing holiness. And he says, If you call on Him as Father, that part of our motivation for holiness is understanding that God is our Father. He is our Heavenly Father. That He is a good Father. To know a good Father is to want to please that Father. Good earthly fathers are are those that live to care for their children, to provide for their children, to protect their children, to oversee their children. And there is a natural, almost intuitive response to a good Father to want to please Him. Part of our motivation for holiness is because God is our Father. He's our Father. He's gracious. He's good. He's over our lives. I, I know my relationship with my father. I'm very thankful that I, my father I, uh, and I have had a great relationship. He's been a great a great father. Uh, and when I was a kid, I can just remember him. He was just a faithful father. Uh, he provided for us. He was steady. He was committed. It was wonderful. And I can just remember as he would ask us to do things, there was just this desire to please him. He, uh, I can... One memory comes to mind. He would have us clean up the yard on Saturdays, and I don't. He just wanted the yard cleaner. We'd go out and we'd just pick up sticks. I can just remember, you know, when Dad asked, "Let's go clean. Let's spend part of our Saturday morning working as a family." There was a desire. Yeah, let's do that, Dad. I want to please my Dad. I want to go pick up sticks. I probably would not pick up the sticks on my own. I don't really care if there's sticks in the yard or not, but my Dad did. So I was glad to pick up sticks. Similarly, our heavenly Father is our Father, and there is a desire for holiness. To follow Him, to please Him. Also though, Peter continues here, he says, if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially. That God as our Father, He's a Father slash or dash judge. Really uh, an earthly father is this as well. A good earthly father is over our lives. He oversees our, our lives. He cares for us. He wants to bring the truth to bear. Our Heavenly Father is like this as well. He is a judge who, who judges impartially. And if you're a believer, you come to Him as your Father indeed. He is your Father. And you are part of the family through the merits of Christ and you'll never be cast out of that family. But He still is an impartial judge. He still is a judge of your life. Your life is still going to be evaluated by Him. You will stand before Him as this perfectly heavenly Father and you will give account for your life. Now, you're not going to be sent and banished from the family, but you will give an account of your life. He's not a sugar daddy. He's not a pushover. He's not a, a, a father that just gives a blind eye to the weaknesses of his children. Overlooks that. He is an impartial judge. And He is going to evaluate your life. You will stand before Him along with me. We will stand before Him and give an account. Now if you are not a believer, He's actually not your Father. He's Father in a sense. He has Father over all humanity as Creator. But He's actually not your Father. You're not part of the family. But He offers you free entrance. Just turn from sin and self and say, I need You, God. Thank You for dying for me, Christ pay for my sins and to give me life. He receives all those who would repent and believe into the family. There's no reason to remain outside the family. But if you continue to do so, you will face Him as a judge that's a condemner judge because you have rejected the only plea you would have before Him, which is Christ and Him alone. And so you will have to be banished from His presence. But for the believer, this is not... Your experience. You are part of the family. But you will stand before Him as judge. We are in the family by grace alone, but we are before a Heavenly Father who is a judge. There's a quote from F.W. Baer to put up the Canadian Bible Scholar. He says, Our knowledge of Him as Father must not dispel our dread of Him as our judge. Our knowledge of Him as Father must not dispel our dread of Him of him as our judge. He is a impartial judge. He is a perfect Father, and we will stand before Him and give an account for our lives. And it will be according to our deeds, as Peter continues, and partially according to our deeds. He will evaluate our works, our life. There'd be two things I believe that go on with that. First off, our deeds must must confirm the reality, the presence of faith. It is by grace through faith we are justified before God. It is in Christ. Christ's work alone. But it's, not, it's, it's faith alone, but, but it's not a faith that is alone. There are works that testify to the reality. So your deeds will be used to show, yes indeed, this is one of mine. This one has repented and put their faith in me and has followed me. But also there's an aspect of the judging of our deeds that will also factor into our degrees of reward. Yes, there are degrees of reward in heaven. It's very clear in Scripture. And your, the outcome of your standing before Him as impartial judge will determine the degree of that reward. We see it in Scripture, 1 Corinthians. And John, if you could put this verse up. Paul's speaking to church leaders about the degrees of their reward. And there are implications for all believers and other verses as well we can look at. But this one says, The fire of Judgment Day, that is, will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation, which is Christ, survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. There are some who are going to come through that judgment day smelling of smoke. They'll make it through. But they won't have anything else. They won't have a reward like those who have labored in Christ to build on the foundation of Christ, to walk in holiness. I don't want to be there on Judgment Day coming through smelling of smoke only. By God's grace, I want to labor in this life soberly in appropriate fear of my Father Judge so that on that day when I go there, there will be a reward. And I want you guys, part of my reward comes from leading you guys and serving you guys so that you might have a reward on that day as well. Your conduct in this life matters a lot. It has everything to do with your reward in the future. Yes, it's by grace, Christ alone, That's you get in. But as Paul says, if there has not been a life building on the foundation, walking in holiness, everything will be burned up. You will suffer loss, though you yourself will be saved, but as only, only as through fire. So we are live that way. And Peter here is reminding us of this. How many here have had a, a job or now have one where there are yearly reviews? Me too. All right. And, and yearly reviews are actually are a very helpful thing. Particularly if your company uses the yearly review both to deal with if you fall short, but also to reward you if you meet or exceed your standards. It's a, it's a great system. Doesn't it affect how you live? Isn't there, aren't there times during the year that you think, okay, I've got that yearly review coming up. I've got these items on my performance sheet that I need to do because I know at the end of the year they're going to want me to have done this. As a matter of fact, you know what? I think I can get that done. I think I can exceed that. And isn't there times when there's the anticipation that, boy, if I exceed this, I'll probably get a bonus or a promotion. That way of thinking helps us perform on the job. Peter's doing the same thing here. He's trying to remind us, guys, there's a yearly review coming. And there's the opportunity for reward here. And the more you invest and live in fear, you live soberly now, the better you'll be rewarded at the end. You'll have things that will be precious you'll have for eternity. The stuff in this life, the the temporary rewards, they go. They pass. The things that you do in life, by grace for the Lord, they'll endure. And and you will have them in heaven. So be motivated to holiness. That's what He's calling us to here. To realize that we will stand before this judge, our Father Judge, who will judge us according to our deeds impartially. And therefore, to live in sobriety and fear and in anticipation of our reward. That's Peter's first motivation in this section. Let's move on to the next one. We are to live for eternity because Christ has wonderfully redeemed us or ransomed us from futile ways. This other mindset is to function right alongside this. So Peter says in verse 17, he calls us to this conduct, to conduct yourselves with fear. And then in verse 18, there's a a word. That's a participle, which is a, a type of verb. It says, we are to conduct ourselves in fear. What's the first word at the beginning of Verse 18. Knowing, right? Knowing. We're to conduct ourselves in fear. We are to live in light of our Father's judge over our lives. Conduct ourselves in fear all the while knowing these other things. So these are parallel motivations that are to be in our lives. Parallel motivations along with the fear of the Lord. That's to operate in our lives. We are to, to operate, conduct ourselves this way, knowing, knowing what? That you were ransomed. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. There are two things I believe Peter wants us to know about the ransom. He wants us to know the price of that ransom and he wants us to know the purpose of that ransom. The price and the purpose of that ransom will motivate us in holiness. And so he speaks of the ransom price. And even that word ransom there is a word that was used in that day when you spoke of slaves, re- redeeming slaves. Uh, what's called manumission, which is basically getting slaves out of slavery. And what a slave would do is if a slave, if he or she were able to raise the money, or if a benefactor gave the money, they would take the money to purchase that slave and they would, and they would give this ransom money. They would actually deposit it in the local temple. And then the, the priest of that local temple would transfer the money to the slaveholder. And the slave, the slave would be free. And it was understood that in that, that you're giving the money to the local temple, the local God, and it was actually the local God, or the God, uh, the false God, that was the one who was redeeming you to slavery. And it was, it was money. It was silver or gold that was deposited. So Peter, speaking to an audience that would have understood this, tells them that you were ransomed Not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Not with normal way, just silver and gold. But with something far more valuable. But with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The the ransom price for us is infinitely valuable. More than silver or gold. You were bought at a price. You were bought at an amazing price. The most expensive commodity actually in the entire universe is God Himself. And it was God Himself in the form of the Son who gave His blood for you, who gave His life and suffered the just holy wrath of God in your place. God Himself has spent a whole lot on you. He has purchased you with an infinitely valuable price. With the precious blood of Christ, you have been ransomed. You've been bought with this amazing price. Therefore, don't squander your redemption. Live in light of His amazing love and goodness to you. Live in response to that, to live for Him. You'll never be able to pay back even a smidgen of the price. That's not the motivation. You won't ever pay it back, but let that reality of His amazing love, the precious price... Paid for you, let that fill your mind and motivate you to respond in worship and in gratitude and obedience. Recognize the price that was paid for you. The magnitude of that price will have a direct bearing on the magnitude of your motivation. The more you are aware of the size of that price paid for you, the greater you will be motivated. If you you think that that's not all that worthwhile what He paid for you, it won't be all that worthwhile to obey Him. But as you recognize just how amazing it is, how great God is, how holy He is, how infinitely worthy He is, how glorious He is, how little I am, how unworthy I am, as that gap grows and grows and grows, and you behold the ransom price paid for you, that will have much effect on your motivation. He who has sinned much loves much. When you recognize you've sinned much and that price is huge, you will love much. That's what Peter is speaking of here in these verses. The ransom price is so significant. God has given so much to you. Too. To just go back for a moment to our Heavenly Gourmet allegory. It's as if the owner of Heavenly Gourmet has spent exorbitant amount of money to provide this fare for you. Perhaps we could say He sent His Son to some exotic place to obtain the best food available. And in the process, the Son actually gave His life. He died there. So that you could have this amazing food. Would that affect how you'd approach Heavenly Gourmet? Would there be a desire, wow, this is precious here. This is an unbelievable opportunity for me. How much more the reality that it's the infinite, eternal, worthy Son of God who gave His blood for you, that you might walk with God and live for Him And enjoy blessing in Him. The price of our ransom motivates us to live for Him. The ransom purpose as well motivates us to live for Him as well. So Peter says here in this section, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with these perishable things. So the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. You have been ransomed from futile ways. You've been ransomed from meaningless living. Futile ways inherited from your forefathers. You've been ransomed. You've been rescued from a lifestyle, a perspective of living that is ultimately meaningless. You've been rescued from purposelessness to great purpose. These empty, Ways. These destructive ways. Now some of us perhaps have had forefathers who have brought us a good inheritance. But apart from God, the very best this world has to offer is entirely meaningless. Vanity. If you study Western thought, you can see this. Really any culture, I think, apart from God, we see this. Does anyone know the father who is considered the father of modern philosophy? Anybody? Some of our students might know that one. Who's that? Yeah, well, a little before him, uh, Rene Descartes. Yeah. And, and, uh, and he's considered the father of modern philosophy. And what was his core statement? Anybody know his core statement? I know it's kind of like back in college right now. Sorry, guys. But, I think, therefore I am. Is that a comforting and helpful thought? If you really start to dig into it? The... the, the the bound, the the basement, the foundational thought for Western philosophy is basically, I think, therefore I am. That's all you got, apart from God. I think, therefore I am. And matter of fact, if if you really look at it, if you do do your uh, metaphysical work, you don't even know who the I is. You don't even know what the I is. You're just aware that there's some thinking going on. That, that you're experiencing some thinking. All you're aware is that you're thinking, and, and if left to yourself, all you know is that I got I got some thinking going on right now, and you guys could all be part of my dream, or my, I don't know if it's my dream. If it's someone else's dream, but you guys are just going on here, and I'm going on here, and I've got, and I'm just aware that when 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 I eat nice food, I feel good, and when somebody pinches me, it hurts. That's all I got. Ecclesiastes rightly says, "Vanity, vanity, all is vanity." Life apart from God is entirely meaningless. And our culture is understanding that. We've come to the end of modernity. We've thought that there was some meaning in science and philosophy and you could try to find something and do something. And in in a lot of ways, that led to some of the worst atrocities in the history of humankind. And we realize there's nothing here. Modernity does not work. It doesn't give us answers. Yeah, there's some things in science and philosophy we might obtain, but ultimately it's vanity, vanity. Vanity. All this vanity, so our culture is now turning into, or has turned into postmodernism, which says vanity, vanity. is all vanity, but let's have a good time. Let's make some good friends and just enjoy friendship. That's the best we can have. But actually, if you think about that, no, it's not. That's vanity, too. Life apart from God is meaningless. <coughs> Things, food, clothing, even friendships are meaningless, ultimately, apart from God. Fifty years from now, a hundred years from now, are, are people going to remember you? No, nobody's going to. They're not going to remember you. Maybe some of us, I don't know. Maybe some of us will be famous, but but I don't think anyone's going to remember me a hundred years from now. Can you guys name your great grandparents by their first names? I know last names pretty easy, right? But by their first name, some of you can. Life is just fleeting and passing, and our life apart from God is futile. It's empty. It's destructive. He has come to rescue us from this empty, destructive lifestyle. To find purpose in Him. To live for God. This ransom price was paid for us to purchase us from our sin. To purchase us from futility that we might find life in Him. He gave the Lamb of God who was foreknown before the foundation of the world's. He gave this Lamb who was slain in in God's purposes before the foundation of the world and made manifest now in this time for your sake. Because He wanted to purchase you from futility to eternal purpose. He wanted to rescue you from that which is futile to find eternal life and purpose in Him. Living for Him. Being rewarded by Him. Enjoying Him. Accomplishing His purposes here and now. There's purpose and meaning in life because of Him. There's rewards. We are to live for Him and our life is full of opportunity to glorify His name. For what we do in this life in response to Him by grace through faith does count, does matter. And when we love one another in His name, there is an eternal reward in heaven. There is blessing that comes. There's a legacy here as well. It matters what you do here. And you know what? The system of worth that God measures by is different than the world system. So many of us, not many of us, are going to be that famous and well-known, even as we serve the Lord. And and I would celebrate. I want us to celebrate those who have the opportunity in life to honor God, to walk in holiness in a way that is known famously. Amen. There are some that God will grant to us that are gifted in such a way. They will make a long impact. They'll be famous, but probably 99.9% of us won't be. But you know what? That doesn't matter to God. God's not interested in what the history books say about you. He's interested in what he thinks about you. And 1 Peter is full not of examples of being famous for God. It's full of examples of being famous for God before God by doing very simple things, very simple, straightforward acts of holiness, like loving your wife. Laying down your life for your wife. Loving your husband. Putting up with your husband when he is a bozo. Submitting to him, encouraging him, helping him. Loving your children. Submitting to authority. Suffering with your eyes on heaven. Enduring trials. Peter is full of these nitty gritty ways to live for eternal purpose. That's what God's interested in. When we get to heaven... I think we're going to find that many of the famous people on earth, even famous Christians, aren't necessarily going to be all that famous compared to some of those that may be obscure, that were faithful to live for God's glory amidst these very normal circumstances. So as we conclude, as the band comes up, I just want to give you an opportunity to think about one way in your life to be motivated for holiness. One way in your life to eat at Heavenly Gourmet to stop eating at Hell's Kitchen. And I would encourage you to think about the context these put you in. Your marriage, if you're married, your family, your close friends, your extended family, your neighbors. There's opportunity all around us. There are thousands and thousands of opportunities to live for him right where you are. To put off an old behavior, to put on a new behavior as you are motivated by God and his purposes. Just maybe give you one example from my own life one way I'm aware that God wants to change me. And one of the prime opportunities for me to live for God's glory is in my relationship with my wife. And I just recognize that I don't appreciate my wife as much as I should. I don't love her as much as I should. Now, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. You can certainly ask those who know me. I think my marriage is pretty good, and I do love my wife. But you know what? When I look at the Scriptures and I see... Just as Christ loved the church, I'm um, to love her. I fall short. I know I do. And specifically, there's just some areas in my life that as I think through it, I'm aware, you know what, there's two things I think that I need to do, both in terms of put off and put on. I think often I respond to my wife in an ungracious way. I take her for granted. And when, sometimes when I'm disturbed in my schedule by her or a need she has, my, my response is irritability. I don't want to be bothered with this. please. If there's anybody I treat poorly that way, it's my wife. Because she's closest to me, and I take her for granted. So I need to put that off. I need to think about why do I do that? I'm wrongly oriented towards my wife, aren't I? I'm selfishly oriented towards my wife. I need to put that off. That's hell's kitchen. Scripture calls me to be oriented to my wife in the way Christ was to the church. I'm to love her. I'm to lay down my life. He promises me blessing, blessing to my wife, blessing in heaven as I do that. So I'm going to purpose. And I am. I'm actually doing this. This conversation I've had with the deacons is part of my accountability. They know about this area. So I'm seeking to put that off, to be grateful for her, to be thankful, to reorient myself. And the other aspect of that for me is uh, putting on something that I need to start growing in my forethought about how to bless my wife. Guys, I don't know. I think this is a guy thing. Often we don't think of how to bless our wives till it's the couple days before our anniversary, or uh, I, we do a weekly date night, and usually the date night's at 7.30, and right around 4.30 in the afternoon, I'm thinking, oh, I guess we can do this tonight, and what that means is we go to Starbucks a lot, and I, we don't do a lot of special things. If I love my wife as Christ loves the church, I'm going to be putting forethought into our date nights. Um, she's not here. You can tell her that and hold me accountable to that, but, but that's just an example it's just a trivial one. I know there's more significant ones. Some of us are struggling with things that are like so huge we feel our life is coming unraveled. I don't mean to say it's about trivial things. God cares about all the whole breadth of that. And my temptation, I would love just to do a seminar right now for another hour and just hear from you the specifics and serve you in seeing how the Word comes to bear. But I just want you to take a minute to think about those things. Is there one specific area that you can apply this truth, that you can be motivated... To live for eternity because you've been rescued from futility. Think about that and we'll conclude in, uh, in worship and prayer.